This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we welcome from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, Sheena Feist, tissue curator and conservation resource biologist. She's doing some amazing research when it comes to the DNA of Mississippi animals, including the alligator snapping turtle. There have been some recent discoveries of some huge alligator snapping turtles, so we'll talk about them and some other projects that Sheena's working on. Also, as always, Dr. Major here, ready to take some pet questions. So you can join our conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven. MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at six. So good morning. Hope that everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so, Libby, do you have any uh, events that you want to tell us about? Let's see. Tomorrow <laughs> is the last Fun Friday. <laughs> Of the summer. Okay. Well, uh, hopefully there are going to be other fun Fridays. But at the Museum of Natural Science, the Museum Fun Friday, the last one is small, which makes me sad. August is not summer anymore for, for kids and teachers. I think teachers are already starting to go back to school. But anyway, Fun Friday from 10 to 12, so it would be a nice end of before school, starts way to spend your Friday. And then this weekend is a wildlife extravaganza at the Trademark, right. and I'm looking forward to it. It's oh, lots of fun things for kids and adults, and um, things to buy, things you don't have to buy if you don't want to buy, though there's a lot to do other than buying stuff. And Terry Vandevender's getting all of his snakes uh-huh. ready to go for tomorrow, and that's always fun. It's a, a great venue to see him and all kinds of other fun things. All right. Um, what is the Science Fest coming up in September? Do you know about that? Oh, yes. We did that last year. In fact, I think Sheena's front and center on that event. I don't know, actually. I... You have been in the past. You've done things, I know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, that is, um, ag, I think Ag Museum is involved, too. Some years they're involved. It's, it's Science Museum and Children's Museum have all kinds of science topics. Okay. Plenty of time to uh, promote that, but just yeah, something we'll, to we'll maybe to mark on your calendar. All right. Uh, Dr. Major, any interesting uh, things going on at the clinic? You know, it's pretty pretty typical summertime things. We see uh, large numbers of ticks, fleas. Uh, we deal with a fair number of strays as well. We work with some groups uh, that uh, rescue animals, so some of these animals are pretty bad shape when they come in. But it's a it's a pleasure to uh, start some rehabilitation and and getting those animals back in shape. But uh, I would say that nothing terribly unusual uh, right now. Uh, I will always remind people about the heat and leaving the animals in, in a car, uh, an occupied car, because the temperature, just like with a child, can get out of hand quickly, and heat exhaustion or heat stroke uh, certainly could re- result in death. Uh, other than those things, thinking about uh, the summertime, 
Uh, those are all critical. And of course, it goes without saying, remember your heartworm prevention because uh, it's year round, but uh, sometimes we forget to give that. So we need to be sure to give uh, our heartworm prevention. All right. I wanted to remind some folks about uh, tips to keep in mind when buying a new pet. Uh, but first, we do have a caller to get to. So we say good morning to Mike, who's called in from Natchez. Go ahead, Mike. You're on the air. Yeah, yes, I have a, a two-year-old grandson from Hawaii, and I was looking forward to sitting in the back porch <laughs> looking at and capturing fireflies. But where are they? Oh, I haven't seen any. Well, it's a little late for them. They're usually, um, one species starts actually as soon as it, you start having some warm evenings in April, usually May. And uh, the synchronous fireflies are middle of May till, you know, about the middle of June. Got a few things going in June. And usually July and August, their little larvae, Squirreling around in the in the leaf litter, so they're not flashing anymore. I but the cicadas are out, and that would be a good thing to show a child. Yeah, I saw one or two uh, three weeks ago. Did you see a few yeah, left? That was it. I've, yeah. I've been looking just just out of curiosity, but uh, yeah, the cicadas and bush katydids are uh, making all kinds of noise. So yeah. that's that's an interesting thing. In fact, it's for us in the south, it's kind of a soothing uh, sound. Yeah, I like that, a little bit of constant noise in the background, the cicadas. So if I were you, I'd go looking for some cicadas. You can find the cast-off skins and um, where they've erupted. And if you're lucky, you might find one in the process of transforming. Well, well, thank you very much, because there are no fireflies or lightning bugs in Hawaii. (laughs) Oh, you know, I have read that. Yeah, Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with the wind. Mm. Too much wind for them. Uh, if you've got a, a pond or water close by, doing a dip net and finding some <laughs> insect larvae that way would be fun uh, well, for we, them. We have a place in Lake St. John in Louisiana, so maybe I'll take them there. But oh, yeah. thank you very much. I love the show. All right. Uh, and have fun uh, with your uh, grandson. And we're a member of MPB. All right. Hey, right. Mike. Thank you for the call, and thanks for your support of uh, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You know, I like that sound, too, but I will say uh, crickets can sometimes be a little bit annoying. I remember when I first started, I was the early morning person, so I would come into the building, and I would be the only one there, and I would be in a, a computer room typing away, trying to get some stuff ready for the, the morning, and they would be chirping crickets. And so, of course, you stop and try to figure out where they come from, and when you make one sort of move in their general direction, they think, oh, my gosh, they're so, they, so they stop. And then when you go back to what they're doing, they start chirping again. So, <clears throat> Crickets in the house can be a problem. Yeah. Right. And right. you don't want them in your closet. You know, they chew on things. I did not know that. Yes. All right. Yeah. Well, I'd just like to add something from Mike that even though you might not be able to find the fireflies that you're looking for, it's a great time of year for pollinators. Mm-hmm. So at the museum, we've really had a really great time watching the devil's walking stick bloom over the last few weeks. And last week was a really, really great time because we had several pollinators on that tree. Um, we had all kinds of bees, mason bees, leafcutter bees, uh, bumblebees, honeybees, um, carpenter bees. We also had a bunch of different kinds of butterflies, um, oh, yeah. swallowtails, red streaks. It's for, perfect yes. for pollinators right now. Um, also moths. It's a great moth season. Uh, so if you're looking for those sorts of things, um, either find a blooming plant or for the moths, you might want to look for an area where a light stays on at night. Um, 
but there's some really, really beautiful, colorful pollinators in this state, so those are fun things to look for. All right. So, uh, Dr. Major, we occasionally like to remind folks of some things to keep in mind if you're buying a new pet, bringing a furry friend into your home uh, to make a good match, and I think the first thing would be you know, are you active or a couch potato? Because different breeds of dogs obviously have different energy levels. Uh, what are some other things uh, to keep in mind when uh, thinking about a new pet? Well, you know, in any purchase like this or adoption, and certainly I'd recommend adoption as well, uh, would be to do your research. And as you said, are you a couch potato? Do you want a dog that sits in your lap all day long? Uh, I think I probably could find you one or two of those. Uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised the number of uh, dogs that, when they get old, sometimes uh, because their uh, owners or parents are either infirm or have to be uh, put in a nursing home, this sort of thing. Sometimes we have some excellent pets that are older that would love nothing more than to sit in somebody's lap. As far as uh, the type dog, you really need to do that research. Uh, there's some dogs that are so active that uh, would drive you nuts. Uh, I can think of a few specific breeds, possibly. Uh, Jack Russell's, uh, the uh, uh, men pins, all of those are very high energy. Uh, then there's some dogs that are fairly laid back, and you need to think in terms of dogs that how much upkeep do you want to uh, uh, use from the standpoint of the dog. Some dogs have to be groomed on a regular basis, otherwise they'll mat up and be miserable. And uh, others are fairly, uh, what should I say, maintenance-free. There's maintenance to do, trim nails, ears, this sort of thing for all the dogs, but I would say that uh, that would be one of the things to consider. Uh, some other things you might want to keep in mind, you know, if you live in an apartment or a house, uh, a larger dog, well, any kind of dog would probably uh, like to have a yard, but larger dogs especially would need a lot of area to roam around in. Uh, do you stay at home? Do you travel a lot? That sort of thing. So uh, as Dr. Major said, a lot of things to research and just things to keep in mind uh, before you get that pet and bring them into your home. And I would say with a dog, you know, during the break, uh, Libby, you were telling us your your grandson is loves to throw. Well, that's the perfect match for a dog because I've never met a dog who does not like to fetch. Uh, my grandfather had a dog once that once you started the fetch game, you pretty much had to do it until he got tired of it. And, and of course, it's it gets to a little be a little bit more tricky when they're bringing back the slimy tennis ball to you and you have to keep grabbing it and throwing it. Yeah. But, right. Uh, yeah. right now, Norman's puppy is just wants to catch it and chew it up. But um, well, once he starts bringing it back, I think they'll be a great pair. That is a problem. I, I have to have several several balls to play with because my dog won't bring it back. And, <laughs> and sit, sit, there, sit there and look at you with it like, come get it, you know. Yeah. But uh, they can they can be much inter- very a lot of entertainment for certain. And I'll say even my cat, that's one of the things he likes to do is chase uh, balls. And uh, he, he takes his time, but eventually uh, it seems that they, they return to me. But like I say, it's certainly not, come here, come here, come here. He just, he'll bring it back on, on his terms. So. All right, a question, I guess, for Dr. Norman. Um, if we start giving him a treat when he does bring it back or coax him to bring it back with a treat, is that the thing to do to... to to train them to bring the ball back, or is it just instinct? And well, some some, some dogs have what's called ball drive. Uh, that's very important for the dogs that are being trained to detect drugs, money, whatever. Uh, <laughs> they need that ability to go get that ball. Uh, I would say that 
90% of the dogs are treat motivated, that that would be a good thing to do. Uh, just a small treat. You don't have to give a big treat, just a small treat. And uh, some dogs respond to a good pat on the head, but they, they'd like a treat. All right. Uh, it is time for we'll our try. first break of the hour. Bill's on the line from Greenwood. We'll get to his call and we'll introduce or reintroduce our guest, Sheena Feist. So you're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Back with more Creature Comforts after this. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Today our guest is Sheena Feist from the Mississippi Department of, um, I'm sorry, the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Uh, if you want to join our conversation this morning, we've got some open phone lines. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Sheena, we'll get to talk to you in just a minute, but we do have some calls on the line, so let's uh, begin again. In Greenwood, Bill has called in today. Good morning, Bill. Go ahead. How y'all doing? Uh, I was wondering, is there any Mississippi law that protects turtles from being hunted year-round or from exploiting them? Because when I was a little boy, I used to see, we have a, several bios around here, and I used to see them sunning on the logs and the rocks, but I don't see them anymore. There's people around here. Nearly year round, they're hunting them and they're selling the meat. And just about every month, there's an article in the paper where they're showing this guy captured a gigantic uh, snapping turtle. And they said one of them was 200 years old. I don't know if it's that old, but I know they're pretty old. And I was just wondering if there was something that you could do to protect them. And. Uh, because, you know, I, I, I don't even see it anymore. Uh, any thoughts? So there are some regulations about turtle take in the, in the state of Mississippi. Um, I don't know the specifics, but there are some folks that you can get a hold of either at the Department of Wildlife or at the museum. But your fishing license, hunting and fishing license, um, the small game um, allows for the take of a certain number. Um, commercial harvests are also regulated, um, but we, we keep track of that stuff. And... Um, I think it's only four that you can okay. take, right? I I'm not sure, but so. Scott Payton at the museum, yeah. not not to put him on the spot there at the museum, but he would have some really four. great information for yeah, you. Yeah, Java's holding his hand up for He's He's been... Perfect. He did a search. <laughs> Thank you, Java. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so it, it is not legal to just go down to the creek and blast away at turtles, and we certainly try to spread the word that people shouldn't do that. Um, but, I mean, what, this is one of the reasons why we do a lot of turtle research at the museum. Um, turtles are, are um, experienced in some declines in recent years, um, and I guess over some decades as well. But uh, we can talk about that a little bit more when we get into the eDNA talk. Okay. Bill, thanks for your call. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines here for just a few minutes. Next, we've got uh, Evelyn in Brookhaven. Good morning, Evelyn. Good morning. Go ahead. I wanted to um, share with you all. Uh, how to teach a dog to bring the ball back to you. Okay. Um, uh, Dr. Major joked that he, he needed several balls to play with because <laughs> his dog wouldn't bring them back. And uh, that's actually a great start. Um, what you need is um, at least two balls or toys or whatever. And if they can be as identical as possible, that's even better. And what you do is you throw ball number one, let your dog chase after that, 
and as soon as you can get some eye contact with him, then you throw ball number two in the opposite direction so that the dog has to come back by you in order to chase ball number two. And while he's getting ball number two, you go and get ball number one and be ready to throw it in the opposite direction. And pretty soon your dog will be bringing the ball right back to you and dropping it at your feet in order to get ready to chase the next one. All right. And after a while, you can kind of fade that out so that you just need one ball then. So they'll always bring it back to you. All right, Evelyn. Great uh, call there. Thanks for the uh, tips on on Fetch 101, I guess That's we could call it. That. Yeah, That's good. Yeah, it's a good idea. All right, uh, John's on the line next. Uh, John, did, did you hear the last call? Because I think you were looking for some information about uh, fetching. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I think you pretty well answered it. Okay. Uh, I'll try that. But I, but I did have a question also. Um, um, I have two rescue dogs, Bonds, who's two, and Trooper, who's ten. But I got Trooper about three weeks ago. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, I took him to the vet, and his teeth were the worst I've ever seen. That's the only time I've ever been sick looking at an animal. Anyway, he had 15 abscesses removed and, and all. Uh, I didn't get a chance to ask the vet, but should I assume that he's neglected with all his shots, too? I think you're probably right. He should be checked. And the vet, I figured they may have checked him, you know, like for heartworms and this sort of thing. I guess they probably did. But uh, I would say need to get his shots up to date uh, if there's no record of shots. Okay? Yeah, there's no record. Okay. Well, thanks for taking that dog in. It sounds like he needed some help. And uh, I sure hope he does well for you. All right, John, uh, thanks for your call. Good luck, too, with uh, teaching the dogs how to fetch. That sounds like that would be a fun time for both a dog and human and a good way to get some exercise out in the backyard. So uh, we got some calls on the line, but Sheena did want to talk to you for just a few minutes. Uh, first of all, if you would, tell us a bit about your background and some of the day-to-day things you do at the museum. Okay, so I am currently a conservation resources biologist at the Museum of Natural Science. Um, I am the tissue curator, as mentioned previously, um, I conduct genetic research on Mississippi wildlife, so that includes looking at um, genetic relationships among species, um, population genetic structure, how do human infrastructures impact um, population um, connectivity between uh, species, which is really important for long-term preservation. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not talking loud enough. I apologize, folks. Um, but my background is in um, ecology, evolution, and behavior. I have a degree from the University of Missouri. Um, but, yeah, I use genetics as my tool to answer conservation questions um, important to uh, species of greatest conservation concern in Mississippi. Um, so what about alligator snapping turtles? Uh, first of all, if you could maybe <coughs> describe what they look like compared to maybe some of the other turtles people might have seen in ponds and that sort of thing. That's a really great question because I think folks often get the common snapping turtle confused with the alligator snapping turtle. Uh, common snapping turtles you're more likely to encounter. They seem to be a bit more abundant than the alligator snapping turtle. However, there are some major differences between the two. The common snapping turtle um, is quite a bit smaller when it's an adult than the alligator snapping turtle. Like an alligator snapping turtle can get up to 200 pounds. A common snapper is not going to get above about 75 pounds. 
Um, alligator snapping turtles have a much sharper beak on their mouth. Um, they also, the alligator snapping turtles will have three ridges along the top of the shell. Common snappers do not have that. Um, so they're, they're pretty easy to, to, different, to di, di, differentiate from one another um, if you know the differences. Okay. Uh, we'll be chatting with Sheena throughout the hour, so we will continue now with some phone calls. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Back to the phone lines we go. We start again in uh, Holly Springs. Thomas has, uh, Tomasto has called in. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. You're on the air with us. Oh, yeah. My name's Tom. I'm from Gillsburg. And I've got a uh, cat, and I received him as a kitten. I kept him indoors, and he kept climbing on stuff. So I went and bought me a Nerf gun that has some soft darts on it, and I shoot it at him, and he'd run off. And I started just having to pick it up, and he'd get down from what he was on and go hide somewhere. Then he got old enough, I put him outside, and... Uh, he started running off into the woods and stuff, exploring. I get tired of calling for him. One day I saw this cowbell I had hanging up by the porch. I rang and he come running. <laughs> so now every time I don't even have to call his name anymore. I just rang, rang the bell and he comes running to the porch. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw a cat do that before. So cats are smart. That's oh. a pretty smart cat. You're right. <laughs> All right. And and when I'm ringing the bell, my German Shepherd started looking for him too. <laughs> Where's he at? Where's he at? So you know. Uh, as long as he's within hearing distance of that bell, he comes running when he hears that bell. And when he comes up there, I start petting him and stuff before he goes to his food. All right. Uh, thanks for the call. Uh, my guess would be, uh, Dr. Major, and I'm an, an amateur cat psychologist here or whatever, uh, I think he must have somehow associated the bell with a food. That's just my guess. I don't know. I, that, when it, when it's push comes to shove, I think cats and food, that's that's always the connection I look for. That's probably a good point. Uh other thing that some people use, you know, cats are curious. Some of them will jump up on the kitchen counter, that sort of thing. The Nerf gun is good. Uh, however, a, a bottle of uh, squirt bottle with water in it uh, works pretty well. Mm-hmm. Other people have used uh, a small can full of rocks and rattle it, and the cat will jump off. But they learn pretty quickly. I've, I've got one cat that loves to jump up on the counter and he's been squirted a few times <laughs> and all I've got to do, just like you said, he reaches for the gun, I reach for the water bottle and the cat goes down. <laughs> of course, he gets up there when I'm not there. <laughs> but anyway. All right, uh, let's uh, stay on the phone lines and so next we will talk to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Hey, y'all. Hi. <laughs> I have a comment about crickets and I have a question. Uh, Chinese think having a cricket in the house is good look. Oh, didn't something I read long ago. And I read something in USA Today this weekend about the thought to be extinct sawtooth fish. They found some in Mississippi waters, and it's really interesting the way they look for those sawtooth fish. They take a sample of water, and they can tell their get their DNA out of the water. Have you heard anything about that? It was very interesting. I wish I'd saved that article. You do similar research, don't you? I do do similar <laughs> research, and that's sort of what we're talking about today and at the noon lecture next Tuesday. But um, are you saying saw, S-A-W, tooth? Right, saw tooth. Yes, uh-huh. there is a biologist um, in the Mississippi um, college system at USM, um, Dr. Nicole Phillips. She is doing some sawtooth eDNA research with her students, and they're collecting water samples um, and, and able to detect that species using uh, uh, genetic analyses. 
Don't you do that with with the turtles too? I do that with you? alligator snapping turtles. Yeah. Yes. All right. Uh, let's uh, thanks you Sue for your call. Let's get one more call in, and then after the break, we will get in more to the research that Sheena is doing. So let's say good morning to Virginia in Mobile. You're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Hey, good morning. Enjoy your show. Thank you. I um, we spend a lot of time in the Orange Beach Gulf Shores area during the summer. Last summer, um, we just had a, an abundance of frogs everywhere. Uh, bullfrogs every time you took a walk. Um, now, this is not on the beach area, on some of the marshy areas and some of the uh, bayous that, that are in that coastal area. There would be bullfrogs everywhere, and at night, a continuous chorus. Coincidentally, maybe, or maybe not, I wanted to ask you, we also saw a lot of snakes, particularly uh, water moccasins. And a friend of ours who has a farm said, well, you know why you're seeing more snakes this summer? It's because they eat frogs. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Well, this summer, we're not seeing the frogs. There's yes. a chorus at night, but a, a <laughs> much quieter chorus. That's, and as a result, yeah. I have yet to see a, a watermark in this summer. Yeah, that's very common. There's a... You know, we talk about a balance of nature, but it doesn't mean everything's even all the time. Generally, in our pond, we have the same thing. We'll have one year really high population of bullfrogs, and then the snakes show up, and then we'll have high population of snakes for a while, and then it all drops, and it'll be a couple years, it'll build back up, and you've got all those the bullfrogs again, and the snakes come back. If you uh, get out there at night with a light, sometimes you can see the snakes hunting, actually. And it's a problem for the bullfrogs because, actually, I think to some extent they have an instinct to to know that the calling is also attracting their uh, snake predator, but they've got this strong, you know, desire to find their mate, and they do that by calling. So, you know, the bullfrog, he's kind of damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. <laughs> he, he makes his call, he gets his mate, so hopefully he, he reproduces, but he's also taking a great risk of calling in his predator, the snake, yes. to get him. But the cycling that you're talking about is fairly common. Mm-hmm. Uh, in insects, other animals. Uh, and in mice, too. That, right. Yeah. I, can, I can remember one year that we saw just the f- driveway was covered with the giant water bugs. Mm. Uh, and then again, you might not see them for years. Uh, so they can have some uh, interesting uh, blooms of population, yeah. I guess is the right yeah. word. Yeah. But yeah, you're, that- you're seeing a, a really a, a very interesting behavior going on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh-huh. All right. That's great information. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Virginia, for your call. Let's uh, take another break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest, Sheena Feist, from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Also, we've got some phone calls to get to as well. And some open phone lines, though, if you'd like to join the conversation. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Have you been in this situation? You're listening to a great story on Think Radio in your vehicle, but now it's time to go inside. You want to keep listening, but you're ready to move on. What can you do? Pull up the MPB Public Media app on your phone while you're in the car. 
you can continue listening to that great MPB local show and not miss a moment. Search for the MPB Public Media app in your app store. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield, and we're visiting today with our guest, Sheena Feist, from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Got some open phone lines. If you want to join our conversation this morning, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We've got Mike and Karen on the line. Mike and Karen, we'll get to your calls in just a minute, but we did want to have uh, Sheena tell us a little bit about uh, some of the research that you're doing and understand, Sheena, that you are using uh, the, the alligator snapping turtle in your research. Yes, I am. So, um, I'm a geneticist, but I also like to um, work with animals that um, are high priority or considered um, uh, species of greatest conservation need. The alligator snapping turtle is one of those species. It was petitioned for listing as an endangered species in 2012. And in 2015, it was decided by the Fish and Wildlife Service that that petition was substantial, which means that there was enough evidence to suggest that this needed to be looked at further. So um, between the time period of 2015 and 2019, so this year, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service was looking for information about the alligator snapping turtle. How abundant is it? How large is its distribution? How much is that distribution contracted over time? Um, What are the population trends as far as sex ratios and age ratios, those sorts of things? Um, So the Museum of Natural Science... um, in my arena, we decided to use environmental DNA to be able to survey for this species. Um, if you're not familiar, environmental DNA is just a method um, involving sampling an animal's habitat, the environment that it lives in, um, and then using some genetic analyses to detect, to detect it. Um, this is useful for something that, like the alligator snapping turtle because um, it is assumed to be not very abundant, um, and it's also very hard to, to, to detect. Um, so a method that allows you to find something without having it in hand um, is very useful. It also expedites um, some of the survey efforts that we want to do because traditional trapping takes a tremendous amount of time and effort, um, and, and eDNA has helped us in this endeavor. Especially with an animal that wants to hide. Yes. He doesn't want to be found. Yes. Yeah. And I should mention, we do have some traditional trapping going on with a student at USM, Luke Pearson. He's done a phenomenal job. Um, there is a talent and a skill involved in trapping these large turtles, um, and he has done a phenomenal job doing that. When you find the DNA, can you tell what gender it is? Can you tell how big? None of that kind of stuff. No, ma'am. So that no. is what is the big difference between eDNA and the traditional trapping. eDNA is nice for detection, presence, absence. So we know it's here. We suspect that it's not here. That traditional trapping is going to get it questions that we cannot get at with the eDNA itself. Um, what is the sex of the individual? How old is it? Um, how many are here? Those sorts of things. So if I understand correctly, with the eDNA, you're actually, as you said, finding something without actually finding the, the thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's the great thing about genetics. So what I like to tell folks is um, just like when you take a shower at home, uh, you are sloughing off skin cells when you're washing your body with your sponge. Uh, you're losing hair. Um, some kids like to pee in the water, those sorts of things. So all of this material contains genetic information. It contains your DNA. Um, and so this, the, the alligator snapping turtle is 
doing something very similar in its own environment. It's, it's rubbing against logs and rocks. It's defecating. It's reproducing. And so all that material contains uh, genetic information to be able to detect that species. But I can see where that does work hand-in-hand with the people that are out there finding the turtles themselves, because if if you have a large area, you can say, well, focus your attention in this area. Yes, yes. Yes. So that was a plan initially, was to be able to go out and scout areas where, yes, we got a a detection here, a presence with the eDNA, and maybe you should target this area. But then we decided to sort of... um, target different areas from one another. We knew that uh, Luke Pearson, uh, the USM student who was doing the trapping, was working in the Pascagoula drainage. We knew that he also had plans to hit the Pearl River and the Tom Bigby. Um, So what we end up doing is working with the Fish and Wildlife Service on a refuge system to detect um, animals there. But yeah, you could use it as a scouting method, um, which might be helpful in areas where they're really, really hard to find. So examples of that is in West Tennessee, Indiana, Illinois, Oklahoma, Kansas, areas where the alligator snapping turtle looks to not be doing well at all. And you've done this with salamanders too, haven't you? I have not done eDNA with another species, but it is common in salamanders. It's common in salamanders. It's common in carp. Uh, We use, uh, scientists in general, um, use eDNA to detect rare species, but also invasive species. it's important to get a hold of the distribution of species when they're invading an area and making sure that they're not getting in. For example, the Great Lakes area with the carp, um, eDNA has been very useful um, in that situation. All right, we'll continue visiting with Sheena throughout the hour. We've got a couple calls to get to. Let's start again in Corinth. Mike's on the line. Thanks for holding, Mike. You're on the air with us. Hey, how you doing today, man? Good. Uh, I just want to uh, comment on the uh, smartness of cats. Okay. I got a cat about. 10 years ago, and my dog raised him, and he sits, he gives you his paw, he comes when you call him, he growls when you knock on the door, ring the uh, doorbell, he tries to bark. We save animals. I got about 12 of them now, but uh, not the other cat showed him that you're not a dog, you're a cat, do some cat things, but he, he still thinks he's a dog. He does growl, so they are pretty smart. That's funny. He comes when you call his name. Yeah. That's good. All right, uh, Mike, thanks for the call. Uh, being a cat owner, I would agree with that. I think cats are quite smart. And uh, the other thing that it, I was reminded of again yesterday is cats can be standoffish, I think, to people they don't know, but to familiar people or their owners. Uh, I know I was working on some things, you know, uh, balancing a checkbook and that kind of thing, and the cat he uh, comes and will sit right there in the middle of the things, you know, in my computer desk. Uh, when I'm trying to get something done because he wants the attention. So yes. it's amazing how he'll, you know. But only when he wants the attention, right? Well, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Two things to remember <laughs> about cats. Uh, number one, if they could talk, they wouldn't. <laughs> and, and two, if the world was flat, everything would be knocked <laughs> off. <laughs> that's true. And I've, I've said this before, but this cat I, this is the only cat I've ever had that he – I just deliberately, sometimes he'll be walking <laughs> along and almost pass something and then think, oh, my gosh, I forgot I was supposed to knock that off the shelf. <laughs> so uh, we got another caller on the line. Let's uh, say good morning to Karen calling in from Olive Branch. Karen, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. First, Dr. Major is so funny. No. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, I found a live insect inside my house. It seemed to be either a, a cricket or a grasshopper. So using that info, I Googled, and it matches a picture of an ivory longhorn borer. And I read that the larva can stay even in finished wood and bore out years later. Do you yes. think that happened, or do you think it hitchhiked in from the yard? I, I've had one come out of a table that had been made uh, for years out of the lumber. Yeah. So, yes, I think they can bore okay. out years later. And will there be more? Do you think there's several, or is it possible it was just that one? 
Good question. Uh, I would say that hopefully this thing hitchhiked in. Uh, check for holes. It's pretty good size. Yeah. It's cricket size, oh. right? Give or take, or a little bit bigger. I didn't find anything, but I'll look again okay. since I know it you know, should be visible. Right. So maybe it hitchhiked. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant the whole side. Yes, it was like the size of a cricket for sure. Right. Yeah, and but you never found where it came out. No. Uh, is there and a I lot don't of have any new furniture? So no, I'm like you. It's probably been there a while. Or it may have just come in. Yeah, it really yeah. may have come in as an adult. Yeah. You know, on, yeah. a, on a different, a little bit different subject. Uh, a lot of times there will be wood bores and stuff mm-hmm. that you might buy. Uh, especially uh, artsy type stuff. A lot of times they'll have, uh, you'll see little holes. It would be wise if you can on those to actually put them in a freezer for uh, several weeks, really. And that That's would, a really should, good point. That should kill okay. them. But I know a lot of times people bring in, may not be the exact name, but it's called Powder Post Beetle uh, that can do some damage uh, to furniture and to your yeah. house. Okay, thank you. All right, Karen, thanks for your call. We've got some open phone lines on Creature Comforts if you want to join our conversation. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 7464 Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Sheena, you were talking about uh, gathering DNA as a way to help uh, track uh, creatures and that sort of thing. Um, how long does DNA stay around? I think you had mentioned that maybe the turtle rubbing up against a tree or something, leaving some of its DNA behind. How long would it stay there where you could then discover that? So eDNA is very interesting. Um, it's been one of the more challenging projects that I've worked on because um, those sorts of questions are very relevant to being able to detect the DNA in the environment. Um, and it varies between species. Um, the persistence of the DNA can be impacted by um, the flow of the water, so it could be pushed away. The water is also going to dilute it. Um, the salinity of the water, the pH of the water, can also um, degrade the DNA at a faster rate. Um, some other issues are UV exposure. Um, sunlight's going to degrade that, that DNA much quicker. Um, but, th- yeah, those are some very important questions to investigate when you're doing an eDNA study and a lot of folks when they're designing these sorts of studies will will look at that in sort of a closed system um, to be able to answer those questions more specifically. So how do you go about collecting the DNA? With the, again, you mentioned water, so you would maybe take a water sample. What are some of the ways you collect the DNA? Definitely. So we we are targeting what looks like alligator snapping turtle habitat. We want to get right on top of where we think that turtle is uh, because eDNA in a turtle is much more difficult than it is in other species. You know, turtles have keratinized skin cells. They don't produce a mucus like fish or amphibian does. Um, So it's a little bit difficult, more difficult than it would be in other species to uh, detect the the eDNA. Um, But basically we're we're using a boat and approaching a sterilized boat, if that makes any sense to anybody. Uh, We want it to be super clean because we don't want to contaminate our sample from another water body. Um, But we are approaching areas that look like great alligator snapping turtle habitat. So log jams are really great areas to to sample. Um, We're approaching and we are using a sterile two liter jug and simply just dipping it into the water. We bring it back. We keep it on ice so we get back to the lab. Uh, Within 24 hours, we use a a filtering technique to um, collect any sort of DNA um, that is in that water on a a cloth-like looking filter, uh, and then we can extract DNA from that filter and then uh, subject it to the DNA analysis. 
All right, let's uh, take this final break of the hour. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with Sheena Feist from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're talking about environmental DNA that uh, Sheena does research with. Also, Dr. Major here, ready for some pet questions, and we have a caller on the line. We'll get to all of that after this break, so stay tuned. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And today we're visiting with Sheena Feist from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, talking about some of the research that she does at the museum. Uh, We've got some phone lines open if you want to call in today at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Sheena, you're going to share some of the uh, information from that you've been learning from your research uh, at the museum and their naturalist lecture this coming Tuesday, August 6th. If you could maybe give us a little preview of what you're going to be talking about. Basically, I'm just going to be giving the introduction. Well, I'm going to give you a talk, a 45-minute talk about some of the eDNA that we've been talking about today with the alligator snapping turtle, just from a start to finish. Um, it's still an ongoing project, but um, we've, we've had some great success with it. So we'll be talking about the alligator snapping turtle and eDNA methods and with a, gr- a lot more detail than what we're saying here today. Uh, to me, it sounds like it's kind of exciting because you're really in this project of trying to determine the the health of the alligator snapping turtle, the health of the population and everything. You're really kind of on the ground floor, you know, doing the, the ferreting out, the investigating. So I imagine that, that that's kind of exciting. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things about my job is um, animals need our protection sometimes. And um, sometimes we make... Um, decisions that aren't based on science. And so the Fish and Wildlife Service really tries very hard to base their decisions on endangered and threatened species status on on data. And so that data is absolutely necessary. And that's what we're doing at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. That's, the, that's one of the, the big duties of the biologists there is to make sure that we are providing the right data, the correct data, the most informed data um, to be able to make those decisions. Because sometimes we don't need to list species and other times we do. All right. Got a phone call to get to, so let's say good morning to Susan calling in from Raleigh. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. I have a question about the disease that's impacting frog populations in a lot of parts of the world. I've been wondering if it has come to Mississippi yet, um, and also whether or not it affects other classes of amphibians. Uh, Does it affect turtles? I seem to be seeing less turtles. I wondered if populations in general in Mississippi are healthy um, and also frogs you know I seem to be seeing less of them but I'm comparing this with maybe my childhood is you know the, the amount of the, these animals I used to see years and years ago so uh, just if you could just that, that, uh, there's a lot involved in this but if you could just comment on all of that I'd be interested Yeah, so amphibians face a lot of challenges in the current times. Um, Something that some folks might not know about amphibians is that they breathe through their skin. And uh, that's a problem in our society because we use things called pesticides and other chemicals, which can be detrimental to their populations. But this fungus can be a problem. Um, And it has been detected in some species um, in the United States and here in Mississippi. But what's really great about, um, well, I shouldn't say great, but what's... um, 
promising is that a lot of species that can contract the fungus um, are very resilient to it. Um, but what's also interesting about this fungus is you can detect it using um, genetic analyses as well. You can swab the skin. If they're not presenting um, symptoms, you can swab skin and um, subject it to a genetic analysis to see if that fungus is present in that population. Um, but yeah, amphibians um, have had a hard time over the decades, but I think some of the regulations that we have um, to p- maintain a, a good environment um, and healthy habitats for these these animals have helped tremendously. And the dusky gopher frog yes. on the coastal um, in the coastal counties of Mississippi has been hit really hard by this chytrid fungus. Yeah, and they have a huge habitat issue, um, but I think yeah. that's being worked on. It's, it, things are improving. We have um, uh, some populations that are rebounding, um, animals that are moving from one, one pond to another, and so that's one of the um, good stories about endangered species in this state is um, I think we've done a, the scientists have done a, a wonderful job um, in, in helping that species out here. All right, Susan, we appreciate your call. We've got some open phone lines if you want to squeeze in a phone call before we end the show this uh, this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Sheena, we've been talking about this environmental DNA uh, that you use in your research. Is this something that's a, sort of a relatively new tool for biologists to use? Yeah. The eDNA has not been around for very long. The first time that it was published and used for detection of animals um, was in 2008. And interesting enough, it involved the bullfrog, which we've talked about this morning. The bullfrog is a native of the U.S., but it is invasive in parts of the U.S. where it does not belong because it's large and it eats everything in sight. Um, it has been problematic. And so it was one of the first species where this tool was utilized, um, trying to get on the forefront of that invasion. Um, so not fairly new technique. Um, it's been used in a lot of species at this point in time. It, it, you know, um, more modern methods. Um, have increased its use uh, and its efficiency. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of animals, but very uh, new sort of technology. And I imagine too, then, that not only are you gathering the research for a specific research project, but if it's a new technology or a new tool, then as people begin to use it more, there's a larger kind of body of knowledge about how to use it. I guess. Yes, and so that um, what's great about these eDNA projects is it can be designed in one area. Um, but geneticists know that in order to do a uh, or to develop a great method, you need to know the genetics of that organism and the diversity of the genetics across that organism's distribution. And you should design that DNA method so that it can pick up the DNA of animals across the entire distribution. So even though I've developed this alligator snapping turtle method for the state of Mississippi, it's applicable in other areas. Um, and there are folks wanting to use it and who are currently using it. So that's very, very great news for um, me as a biologist um, and for the alligator snapping turtle, but for conservation in general. Um, so what other kind of research projects are you currently working on? So I finished up a lot of projects recently. Um, we, we, If anybody is familiar with Tom Mann at the Museum of Natural Science, you know that he has is very, very fond of a salamander called the Webster salamander um, that can be easily found along the trace in the Clinton area. Uh, we finalized a 
uh, a study and published it just very actually it's not even made it to print yet it's it's still in the publishing process um, but we looked at the phylogenetic structure in that species and our analysis suggests that it actually represents across its distribution probably two different species um, so that's a project we finished uh, one project that's ongoing is a crawfish study um, folks when they think crawfish often think of the red swamp the ones that we that we eat and taste so so nice at those uh, those boils um, but we have a great diversity of crawfish in the southeast, uh, even in Mississippi. And there is some work that needs to be done on these species to um, be able to assess genetic relationships um, to help in the management and conservation of those species. All right. Uh, got about 30 seconds left. Uh, just a reminder that, uh, and we had another one today, uh, someone had called in shortly after Libby left last week and had an identification that she needed help with, and we were going to be on that. Uh, and so we please use our email address, animals at mpbonline.org. If you see something uh, that when you're out and about in Mississippi that you think is interesting, different, or that you don't know what it is, if you can always snap a quick picture of it uh, with your smartphone and email it to us, we'll see if we can't help you figure out what it is. That is going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funded provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous shows, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener this week was Liz Gill. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Sheena Feist, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned up next. It's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.